Hello folks, this is Nick and welcome to CB Music Club. With us today, we've got the CB Boys. It's Al. Hiya. We've got Chris. Hello. And we've got Will. Hello. Thanks for joining me, boys. Uh, first big question this week is, what have you been listening to? I did find time to listen to the soundtrack from a graphic novel, I don't know if you've heard of it, Nick, called Murder Ballads, which I haven't read yet, but it did come with uh, with a downloadable soundtrack. I got it for my birthday um, from Nick, I should point out, which is uh, very nice of him. Thank you, Nick, for that pleasure. The soundtrack album, it's only six tracks. It's by Robert Finley, who is like a fairly elderly blues man, and Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys. And it's really good. It sounds a lot like the Black Keys, you might imagine, but... Um, I like the Black Keys, so that's a good thing. It will be staying on rotation because it's good stuff. I've also I've listened to a bit of uh, Teenage Fan Club. Always a good another thing. Another favourite of yours as well as mine. Just watching some old videos of them playing live at Reading Festival in 1992, which uh, was kind of rocking, playing ah, God, knows it's, God Knows It's True, which has kind of fallen away from their set, actually, in recent times, isn't it? Um, and uh, it's a pretty damn good song. And um found a brilliant performance from New York in... 1994, which I think was from a Japanese VHS tape. And um, so that would be 13 era. And yeah, it was pretty good. It was quite interesting. Norman was getting around. He played a bit of drums on Everything Flows. He uh, he was playing bass in a couple of songs as well. And Jerry was playing some sort of weird mandolin-ish instrument when he played, um, I can't remember, <laughs> it's called 120 Minutes or 120 Seconds. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was really interesting because again, the 13 songs haven't really lasted very much in their live set so it was good to see these songs which i've never seen live although i've seen them many times is there something of a shortage of album names you think because obviously 13 was also a blur album and murder ballads was also a nick cave and the bad seeds album murder ballads is after the i say it's from a graphic novel which is called murder ballads so it's not really the album but 13 was also was it a big star was it big star's first album called yeah. 13 yeah and i think that's a deliberate reference for a teenage fan club to big star basically or a homage to big star but yeah you're right blur had 13 as well didn't it it probably would have been the name of adele's first album had she had success earlier as well <laughs> <laughs> Well, what have you been listening to? Well, uh, yeah, I guess this is where my dark humour comes in because, you know, kind of sitting or lying in a hospital bed all of last week, I was you know, starting to th- think as to what might be played at my funeral. Um, and I remember years and years ago, in fact, in 1984, I heard um, Funeral for a Friend, um, which is off the Yellow Brick Road album by none other than Elton John now. Um, <laughs> So I, uh, my favorite. You know, I, went, <laughs> I went back and had to listen to it and I kind of, I did think to myself, thank God I haven't died in these, you know, kind of years in between because that would not be the, the song I'd like at my, uh, at my funeral. Um, but yeah, so I kind of listened to the rest of the album. Some, some decent stuff on it. Um, strangely enough, all these years on, um, there's a track, the last track on the album called Harmony which is quite an excellent song, well put together. So, you know, recommend anyone um, having a listening to that. Um, I was also taking a listen to one of my favourite bands, The Four Tops, and their oh, album, yeah. 1967 album, Reach Out. And, you know, that, that track in itself, Reach Out, is just superb. Do you think that's an idea for a future uh, podcast to talk about songs we'd have at our funerals? Should we wait till one of us dies? Because, like, age we are, it might not take that long. Yeah. <laughs> My, my, I, I have already created my funeral playlist. It is on really? Spotify. Yes, <laughs> it's called Next Funeral. And, uh, it starts I'm not with, laughing. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, yeah. you know, there was a certain point where I thought, I'm going. Yeah, you know, this makes sense. Any minute now. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Uh, it starts with uh, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Come awesome. up and see me. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of Stevie Wonder, and there's a song which is designed to completely freak people up out in the uh, uh, in the middle of the service uh, by a band called Six Finger Satellite. It's called Baby's Got the Rabies. 
I'm, wow. I'm looking forward to looking down on that reaction. I, I, I was just about to say, I can't wait. <laughs> but you're just going to have to. Chris, what have you been listening to? So I came across Bill Callahan, who never heard of before. So the first, the first track I heard from him, he was um, double term with Bonnie Prince Billy. Yeah. Um, and they've done about a dozen tracks together over the last month. But then I then came across an album um, by Bill Callahan, which is also just out this year, called Gold Record. And it's, it's very kind of lo-fi, sort of all country, almost spoken word at times. Yeah. Um, and it's stories, it's really kind of strong narrative um, tales, um, quite dark, some of them. Um, that kind of sort of deadpan delivery of subjects that are quite humorous, but very human. And then since it's Christmas... I went back and dug out an album that came out a couple of years ago that I kind of missed. Aidan Moffat and R.N. Hubbard doing their Ghost Stories for Christmas, I think it's called. Yeah, uh, I, I know that and I love that. a lovely album. And actually, coincidentally, it's got a cover of Lonely This Christmas by Mud that we were speaking <laughs> at that last time's CB Music Club. And uh, it's got a couple of cover versions. It's got They Do Only You, the old Yazoo, Yazoo song, yes. which obviously was, I think it was a Christmas number one by the Flying Pickets, wasn't it? Yeah. You, which is probably why it's popped up on this album. It's quite dark, but in its darkness, there's a real joy and a real lightness of kind of humanity in there. Very, both very, very human albums. Quite funny in there, in mm. a kind of special way. Very good. Well, funny, funny enough, you were listening to Aidan Moffat because one of the things I've been listening to was the recent Arab Strap single. Uh, which came out, I think, in September. They had the first single in 15 years. Uh, it's called The Turning of Our Bones. Really enjoying that, described as a voodoo spell. And uh, they're talking about they're back from the grave and ready to rave. Jack, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was enjoying that. And actually, that, this, I suppose what I've been listening to, there's been a fair bit of Scottish nostalgia. I was listening to The Bluebells, as well, oh, yeah. I've got the, a reissue, a reissue of uh, an album from the early '80s, Sisters, which is the if you remember things like Young at Heart and Yes, uh, Everybody's Somebody's Fool and and so on. Mm-hmm. So I was getting into a cover that of a, a Banana Rama song, instantly Young at Heart. For those who don't know, yeah, Bobby Bluebell was going out with uh, Siobhan Fahey at the time, yes, and. Um, so it's a co-written between the two of them, I believe. Uh, but yeah, uh, if you have never heard Banana Ramble's version, don't bother. It's terrible. But um, yeah, <laughs> they did it first. Being a, I was listening to a bit of Trash Can Sinatra's. That was the the third wheel in my Scottish nostalgia fest. Uh, an album called Weightlifting, which is the, probably their fifth album, but it's a cracker as well. Very good. So Keeping we go. it Scottish. Keeping it Scottish. Keeping it Scottish. <laughs> and what are, what are you drinking, boys? What's the seeing as we're talking about being Scottish? <laughs> I, I'm drinking a Scottish classic, <laughs> the Brewdog Punk IPA. Aye. Yeah. Keep uh, it Scottish. Oh yeah. I'm going to open this one here, live on air. Here we go. Wow. This is, um, <laughs> oh. uh, Eventually going to open. Here you go. This is a first for the CB Music Club. This was sent to me by friend of the show, Paddy McVeigh, all the <laughs> way from New Zealand. <laughs> oh, really? So this is... Castle's New Zealand Milk Stout. Wonderful. Well, Paddy, that was very kind of you, and thanks for listening. Um, I hope you're doing well. Cheers, Paddy. Very good. Well done, Paddy. What about you, Will? What are you drinking? Uh, The usual uh, ginger cordial and and soda water, I'm afraid. Um, I'm still in the the no-drink zone. I'm likely to be even more in it for the next few months, but hey-ho. I quite like ginger um, cordial and soda water, though. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Good for you. Fair. It's not as nice as beer, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on yeah, the. I'm on, that. I'm on the ginger ginger beer actually. What kind? Uh, bars ginger beer actually is what they had in the corner shop. But uh, the good news is I've got rum in it. Uh, I have a bottle of uh, Liverpool Lost Dock rum, which is an English style Caribbean spiced rum. Which somebody gave me for my birthday. Oh, thank, nice. thank you, Sparky uh, and Jules. That was very nice, and it is very nice. It's going down a treat. There's actually more gone from the bottle than I realised. <laughs> how that happened? Sparky and Jules. That sounds like the sort of TV kids show that Chris would be working on. Yeah, already in development. Yeah. <laughs> or it is now. <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. That's the drinks. 
Order. Cheers, chaps. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, cheers. everyone. Next, we're going to, I think, hear from Al, who's going to tell us about 1984. So, 1984. Um pretty much like every year of my life when we haven't had uh, either Tony Blair or Gordon Brown as a Prime Minister. It was something of a, a political hellscape, really. We just had, we were just at the start of the second Thatcher government, um, despite the fact that they had been a complete economic disaster in their first term. They were as inept diplomatically as they were economically, which led to a war which ne- needn't have happened, which led to them winning both the war and a landslide victory in the general election in 1983. So these social conservatives with their weird uh, economic ideologies are setting about dismantling public life in the UK, something that's been going on to this day. It was a year of soaring unemployment, economic hell. Minor strike began when the NUM went on strike in opposition to pit closures, which went on well into 1985. Terrible, terrible times for the miners. And however much you might think that the industry had to change, and it did because obviously it's very polluting, uh, this was not the way to go about it. Rather remarkably, there was an IRA bombing of the Grand Hotel in Brighton where the Prime Minister and Cabinet were staying during the Tory party conference, which killed five people. But Thatcher, obviously, escaped unharmed. Strange days. Not like now at all. (laughs) But this is not a political podcast, so I'll rein in my ranting lefty tendencies (laughs) and just talk about the music. (laughs) (laughs) The story of the year musically should have been Frankie Goes to Hollywood and also the BBC demonstrating beautifully the the whole concept of unintended consequences. Frankie had released their debut single Relax in October of 1983 and it had floated around the nether regions of the charts ever since then until they made a, uh, an appearance on Top of the Pops early in 1984 which saw the record rise to the, into the top 10. Three days later, the Radio 1 breakfast DJ Mike Reed was playing the song on his uh, breakfast show and took exception to both the cover and the lyrics of the song for apparently being obscene and he was so outraged that he actually stopped the record while it was playing and went off on a rant about how offensive the whole thing was and two days later the BBC completely banned the record from being played uh, on any BBC radio stations or television which led to an enormous soar in sales and uh, straight to number one where it remained for five weeks and it actually remained in the charts for almost the entirety of 1984. Their follow-up single came out in June, which is Two Tribes, which is a fantastic song with an excellent uh, Godly and Cream-directed video. And the success of Two Tribes uh, led to another sales resurgence for Relax. And it was in the top ten itself for almost the whole of the nine weeks that Two Tribes was at number one. It was actually at number two in the charts for two of those weeks. And having the same band at number one and number two is something that hadn't happened since the early 60s. And I'm not sure if it's happened since, but... um, I could be wrong about that. Ed Sheeran, probably. <laughs> Ed Sheeran. Yeah, well, the charts yeah. The charts were different by then. It wasn't based on uh, single sales, yeah. And um, they did have another number one later in the year mm. with Power of Love, which was uh, a number one for a week in December. And uh, they had a fourth single from their album, um, the title track, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which got to number three in 1985. The light that shone so brightly um, went rather pale after that and uh, they disappeared for two years and by the time they returned, um, the critical acclaim had gone and it was all a bit of a disaster. They should have been the story of the year, along with Wham, who also had a phenomenal year. Two number one singles and uh, George Michael, obviously the careless whisper, was at number one for a while as well. But of course, the, the story of the year is, uh, is Band-Aid and October 23rd. Michael Burke did a report on the Ethiopian famine on BBC News, which to this day is incredibly harrowing. Eight million people apparently um, afflicted by the famine, and, and, and it's just horrifying. And of course, this prompted Bob Geldof, uh, with the help of Midjur, to put together a supergroup to record a song which uh, Geldof had, had uh, quickly written lyrics for and Midjur quickly wrote music for. And it's difficult to credit uh, in the celebrity landscape of today just how much... Geldof had to harangue people to actually take part in this. Nowadays, such a project, you'd, you'd need the military to hold back your uh, Britain's Got Talent and X Factor stars. Back then, that, that, that sort of celebrity campaigning wasn't really a thing. 
they recorded the single and had it out for Christmas, and of course it was number one for five weeks, <clears throat> keeping Wham off the top spot. And I noticed uh, with some amusement today that as we record this, that uh, Wham are again at number two in the charts with Last Christmas, behind that god awful Mariah Carey song. It was recorded on my birthday. Yes, I know that. I was coming to that. It's not just it's not just footballers dying on your birthday, is it? It's also um, what was then for the next thirteen years the the biggest selling song, the biggest selling single ever in UK history. Uh, and we don't talk about the song that replaced it. Talk about the song that replaced it. I don't know what that is. Oh God, it's "Candle in the Bloody Wind." <laughs> Goodbye, England's Rose. <laughs> the, the the even worse version of "Candle in the Wind." Um, what kind of tragedy is it going to take to knock that off the top spot? Oh God, I don't know. End of the world. I, I don't know. I was going to say, do you know, the thing that amazes me about that Band-Aid single was it was recorded at the end of November and they managed to record it, mix it, print it on vinyl and release it. And it was Christmas number one. Uh, and it was bought by... I mean, that's an extraordinary effort to turn that production around in such a short space of time, surely. That's, pre- that's pretty punk. Yeah, what what do you th- what do you all think of the song? Because a lot of people really hate it. Do they know it's Christmas? I think it's all right. I like uh, it. Yeah, quite uplifting song. personally. Good I song. like it. Yeah. yeah, difficult to separate the song from the whole events around it. I I I, I like the song. I like the song, but I find the, the the lyrics slightly strange because you've got do they know it's Christmas time at all? No, because a lot of them you know kind of um, choose to. Um, kind of worship Islam. Well, that's you know. the kind of that's cynicism that, I, I, that, that bothers me about it. He, he's like, <laughs> he banged it out overnight, you know. He, 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 he didn't spend months writing this, he just did it, and then Majur just wrote a tune to go with it. I think that... The famine was in Ethiopia. <laughs> Ethiopia was the second country in the world to adopt Christianity as a yeah. state religion after Armenia. So there are... Yeah, but it was, it, it was turning the other way at that point. <laughs> Anyway, good song, great intentions, did a lot of good. Eurovision Song Contest, it was in Luxembourg in 1984. Sweden won it again, like they did last time we discussed this, um, except it wasn't ABBA, it was the Harrys with uh, Diggy Lou, Diggy Lay. And once again, folks, I've listened to this song, so you don't have oh. to, it's terrible. <laughs> but, you know, I won a Eurovision Song Contest, so who am I? I've never won a Eurovision Song Contest. It was the best song in Europe that year. Some things we lost in 1984. The police split up, which is not in itself a bad thing because I was never really a fan. Yeah. But it did then um, inflict upon a Sting solo career, which is a horror almost as great as the Ethiopian famine. <laughs> Alexis Corner, he died. Alexis Corner with probably made probably the best Top of the Pops theme tune of them all. Although Phil Lynott's um. Yellow Peril, maybe, I don't know. But his cover, uh, Alexis Corner's cover of A uh, Whole Lot of Love, the Led Zeppelin song. Classic, classic Top of the Pops. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Jackie Wilson died. Love Jackie Wilson. I'd imagine you're probably a fan, Will. <clears throat> I do like Fields yeah. of Gold. Yeah, great darts player. <laughs> of course you didn't. <laughs> World <laughs> champion. Can't say fairer than that. Um, Marvin Gaye. Um, his father shot him dead. Mm-hmm. That was 1984. Count Basie died. And um, Razzle from Hanoi Rocks, a drummer who... Was of course killed in a car crash. Vince Neil from uh, Motley Crue driving after they'd gone out for on a booze run while drunk. Yeah, so um, that's my that's my roundup of 1984 music. Welcome back, folks. Um, this week we are talking about Purple Rain from 1984, which I had chosen. Uh, as an album for the for a number of reasons, but mainly because Prince is somebody that um, I uh, sort of kind of like the idea of, but haven't really done enough listening. And uh, somebody that uh, I wanted to explore a little bit more uh, and figure out why what what it was that everybody sees in him, and maybe Purple Rain was going to be the answer. So Purple Rain was released on June 25, 1984. This is Prince's sixth studio album. So well into a career by this point. Uh, Also the soundtrack to uh, the film of the same name, Purple Rain. Uh, And it's the first album that he'd released where the revolution were uh, 
up in the title as well. Um, and I think there, there's a number of reasons for that, uh, not least that um, this is also an album where the, the last three songs are uh, live recordings uh, with him and the Revolution Band, but also because I think he had um, co-written a fair bit of this album with them. Um, it's kind of generally regarded, I think, as his most pop record and probably his best known record. It was his first album to get to number one in America. It was number one in 1984 for 24 weeks. So we were talking earlier about how 1984 was the year of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but in America it was very much Prince's year. When Doves Cry and Let's Go Crazy were both number one singles, Purple Rain was number two, and I Would Die For You was at number eight. He won Grammys for Best Rock Vocal Performance by Duo or Group, uh, and Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. He also won the Oscar in 1984 for Best Original Song Score. So Prince was everywhere uh, this year. And I think there's um, some quote somewhere I was, was reading where the only person that could have beaten Reagan in uh, the American election was Prince. He was that popular. And Reagan, I think, in that year only lost one state in the whole of uh, the USA, which is remarkable. So that was Prince's most memorable year, I think, in terms of the height of his fame. He was everywhere. He'd gone pop, where before he'd been, uh, I think, a little bit sort of certainly regarded as esoteric, and, and there was it was different musical genres that he was playing with, but he really came into the mainstream here. And I think this was right in the middle of the years where he was producing his best-selling records, probably somewhere between kind of 80, 82 and, and 87 was when he was really at his at the peak of his fame uh, and doing remarkable things and and he was he is a remarkable character as well so I think we're going to have quite a lot to talk about here so I listened to the album and had a lot to figure out about it because I just hate some of that synthesized sound some of the the production techniques that were going around around about that time, I don't like. I don't like the sound of uh, uh, the drums and the 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 synths, the keyboards, and things like that. But I came around on this album, and uh, there's some great songs in it. And actually, uh, I can see why he was at the peak of his powers at that point. What did you guys think? Prior to listening to it, I was a bit like yourself, Nick, where Prince is someone that. I don't know a great deal about and when I've listened to him I've always been a bit disappointed about like the idea of Prince and I do think of him as being a phenomenally talented man he, he just had the, the sheer number of songs that he wrote I mean, phenomenal output which t- takes a lot of talent to be able to do that also an exceptionally good guitar player which I can always <laughs> appreciate as well you know first listen it was kind of better and worse than I expected at the same time it's not aged particularly well let's put it that way <laughs> we'll come back to that Chris, what did you think? I wasn't a huge Prince fan, but some of my good friends at school were very much into Prince, so I kind of sort of absorbed him. So I kind of knew this album, but I hadn't listened to it for a very long time. And when I came back to it this time around, my first impressions were this is a very, very 80s album, and I didn't really think that in a good way. And I do agree with you, Al, that, again, my first impressions was it hasn't aged at all well. Mm. And my third impression was those outros go on for a very long time. But... After many, many, many listens to, um, I was right back into it again. And uh, yeah, it's a great album. That's kind of where I was at. I, I went through that thing of going, what the hell is this? And why am I spending time doing it? Probably actually because I watched the film and it started to take me back to mm. another mm-hmm. time. And it started to make a little bit more sense. I took against Prince from the very first moment I saw him on TV because he was doing an impersonation of, um, oh God, he's just gone completely out of my, Jimi Hendrix. He was doing a Jimi Hendrix impersonation, you know, lying on the floor, playing the guitar with his teeth, that kind of thing. And I just thought, get your own act, son. So, yeah, listen to this album, sound-wise, um, not, not great. I think it's got three great songs on it. And the rest of the songs are sketches. And um, I'd, I'd actually question the sort of emotional commitment to a lot of the songs. You know, it's emotionally underdeveloped, apart from the ones that, you know, 
I quite like. Um, but you know, in this in this position now, all these years on, and I look back at at, at Prince. You know, I am in. Yeah, he's a god. You know, so I did. I started off not liking him, but appreciating him towards the end. But I'm not sure that this album is the you know magnificent event that. Yeah, follow. Yeah, that went forward into the ages, as it were. I think that's really interesting because what came to me after this was that an enormous body of work, which I think I appreciate, and I think it's difficult to pin it down to one era. This doesn't do it, but actually, I think what I'm impressed by is his talent and his ability and his attitude. But I'm not sure it always carries over in a lot of the songs because of a number of reasons. And I think it's really interesting when you say that things were underdeveloped, because I wonder if that's part of his problem, was that he was so prolific yeah. that he never bothered to develop anything <laughs> to his yeah. logical confusion. C- confusion? Conclusion. <laughs> I think he did have a tendency to move on to other projects before he finished the one he was working on. And he did leave a, a huge body of work that had been recorded and never released as well. I mean, ridiculous numbers. You know, mm. Hundreds and hundreds of songs that had never seen the light of day when he died. I was reading an article, um, an interview with the director, and he was saying they had a rough screenplay. But Prince brought in excess of 200 songs to the table for the director to go through and to then kind of craft a film around there. I mean, that is indicative of the amount of work that he was producing. And yeah, maybe some of it was in unfinished, but I also think that's part of the sound of the album. There are moments where it is completely overblown. But equally, there are moments when it's real, there's not a lot going on. I mean, there's no bass line in When Doves Cry. There's a real sense of... You know, stripping it down. His voice obviously is extraordinary. The guitar playing is extraordinary. And a lot of the tracks are carried by the voice and the guitar. And they don't necessarily need any more than that. I think they work They work very well with just that. Prior to this, he was genuinely doing it all by himself. His first three albums, he was playing the drums, playing the bass, playing the keyboards, playing the guitar, singing and producing them. And by the time his third album came out, he was also producing three other bands at the same time and he was was he 17 when his first album came out and at that point he was playing all those instruments writing producing singing you know this guy could do everything he was across everything extraordinary talent yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. even when you're talking about an album where he's kind of you know everyone talks about this is all about collaboration and he's still half of it is stuff that is entirely his but I think that speaks more to his talent rather than his wish to control everything. Yeah, I, I think it's him because he could do it and he didn't necessarily need to bring yeah, it. Yeah, I still have a sense of it, which again leaves me in awe of the talent, but also makes me wonder about whether he was just con- constantly searching for something and was so busy looking for it that he never finished anything. He was just on to the next thing. That's what I think, yeah. yeah. He just never seemed to see things through. But actually, in the moment, so he's recording these songs and, and leaving them, but he's more interested in the process of doing something new. So mm-hmm. the, some of the sounds on this, you know, I, I hated the synthy drums and the um, some of the sounds on it, which just sound, mm-hmm. sound like whatever was the newest technology in, in 1984 rather than anything else that he was playing with and he's using it just because it's interesting at that point rather than... That's valid though, isn't it? It's an extraordinary mix of live and instruments and electronic yeah. music and it's it's quite, quite, quite significant at this point that someone's doing that. You know, there was a lot of electronica about, there was a lot of rock about, but the fusion of the two was, was quite extraordinary at the time. Yeah, and I think he was, he was really interested in doing that new thing and uh, I just don't like the sound of it. <laughs> uh, you say it's valid, Chris, but I think only time will tell if it's valid or not. And some things just don't age well. And the thing that, that I think Nick's probably objecting to most, that I object to most about the album, is the sound of the drums. Uh, and not the programmed drums that Prince has done, but Bobby Z playing the drums on the, you know, the live tracks and so on. Mm-hmm. And that gated reverb and heavy compression on the snare drum it's just hideous. It sucks all the life out of everything around but it. But presumably that was a deliberate choice in the production. It was all the rage at that time in the 80s. But it hasn't aged well. But equally, you say time will tell. I mean, we're, we're, we're 30, what, 36 years on from this album and it's still in the Rolling Stones' top 10 greatest yeah. albums of all time. It has stood the test of time. Arguably. For all that it is absolutely rooted in its time, it's still a very strong 
a very strong app. I, I kind of found myself fantasizing whilst listening and that if I could go back in time, I'd grab Dave Green, Greenfield, the Stranglers keyboard player, and take him to play on this album because the keyboard is, is just somebody pressing down the keys. There's no playing of it at all. And I, I really do think that could have helped. I mean, when Doves Cry is one of the better songs off the album, but the, um, the keyboards on it, just not good at all. Let's start with Let's Go Crazy. Ridiculous intro, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but an amazing song. I, I don't mind the intro because the song is just absolutely top top draw. Um, it gets three ticks from me. Before this, I, I didn't like the song. But then it's one of those, that, and it won't be the last time I say that about a song on the album, that I, I've heard it but never really listened to it. And from the first listen, I thought, this song is better than I've ever given it credit for. It is a very good song, but the drums, Jesus Christ, the drums. They're horrible. They're absolutely horrible. Also, just the way it's mixed. You know, it's a guitar-driven song, but the guitar's so low in the mix, and it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's a song that is stymied by the production on it, which is a pity, because it's a really good tune. Fantastic vocals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. delivery is just... Guitar playing's fantastic as well, but the drums... I cannot get over the drums. The drums are appalling on it. Get over the drums, Al. Get over the drums. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't. I can't. I can't either. I, I hated it. For that, I, it took me half a dozen listens to get over that. It just really, I really, really struggled with the start of this album because of the production, because of the sound of the drums. It just, it was really difficult. And actually, just to, I needed to watch the film to kind of take me somewhere else with it because I was just listening to that terrible 80s drum sound <laughs> it was driving me nuts but do you blame prince for these drum sounds or do you blame the 80s i blame yeah. the 80s i blame the 80s yeah but that's kind of then unfair to judge the album <laughs> i'm not judging now I'm, I'm not because of the time in which it was made of course it's not unfair what the hell are you supposed to judge it on if not what it sounds like it's a ridiculous statement <laughs> no 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 but you're you're because yeah, he could have gone got the stranglers <laughs> drummer you're judging you're judging it for being of its time and when I give my final conclusions, <laughs> and only when, and only when, brilliant song to dance to. It's just absolutely so much energy, but it's just such a happy, upbeat. Yeah, you go crazy when you dance. Well, we all do, but yeah, it's a, it's a... unless you happen to be a small kid in a YouTube video, in which case it's not a great song to dance to. I don't know if you're aware of the. I still, I think, still ongoing court case about um, a kid dancing to "Let's Go Crazy," which is very quietly heard in the background, and Prince sued. And um, no. <laughs> I say, I don't think the case is, has actually finished going through the courts yet. And he was utterly opposed Ouch. to any of his music being on any streaming services or being online anywhere. None of his music was available online till he died. Um, I don't quite understand. Well, a man who seemed to have quite a you know, futuristic outlook, certainly in his music, was utterly opposed to the internet. He was crazy, though, wasn't he? There was a really bizarre moment late in Prince's career when he gave, he released his album and he gave it away free in Britain with, I can't remember if it was the Daily Mail or the Mail, Mail on, on Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, I know. I mean, clearly he'd never picked up the Mail on Sunday or had any notion of what the British press was like at the time. But, I mean... I don't think he spoke to any press at any point throughout his entire career. So I get his point about giving away his music for free. He just wanted to get it out there. He was being stymied by his record company. It was all about making stuff, getting it out there. But of all the places to put it out with. Can we leave the drums? Can we leave the drums now? Well, we'll no, I, drums it's, now. It's, a, it's impossible to separate the album from the drums, unfortunately. I wish it was... was but I feel this is going to be a consistent thing. Moving on, moving on, moving on to "Take Me With You." On the other hand, um, does not have horrible eighties. It's got moderately horrible eighties drums, no. but they're not offensive. And yeah. that was my favourite one of the songs I didn't already know on the album because uh-huh. it just sounds nicer than everything else. You know, it's, it doesn't have all the eighties offensiveness going yeah, on. Yeah, it's a very different groove, yeah. isn't and it? And it's a good song. Gotta say, mm-hmm. liked it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I quite like really it. I, I thought it was flat, but there, there's a acoustic rhythm guitar behind it that I thought was really nice. Um, so it got a tick from me for that. But I, I did think it was the start of the flat period. But yeah, it, it kind of made me hope that, that the whole album wasn't going to sound um, that horrible way. And, um, well, it does What about the it, beautiful ones? This this really grew on me. This, this is one that I didn't remember from... 
way back and it kind of it starts off as a sort of mawkish ballad <laughs> but then by the end of it it's just wrenching it's just extraordinary it's just a kind of primal scream by the end of it and i think that transition that you don't even really notice you kind of the the the, the song starts and it's or that falsetto kind of delivery very very slow not a lot going on and by the end he's just absolutely screeching it and as I say, it's just, it's really kind of gradual and increment, incremental and you suddenly get to that point of thinking, how did we get there from that, that gentle beginning? And for that reason, I think it's... This was the one that made sense when I saw the film. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I, I was listening to it going, I, how, yeah, I, what the hell's going on here? And then you see the film and I'm like, oh, that's what he's doing. And actually somehow I was despite the terrible acting and all the other things <laughs> that's where I suddenly kind of ah yeah yeah okay I see this and that's that vocal performance made sense I think it sounds a bit like maybe the fourth single from a successful Pointer Sisters album or something like that you know <laughs> where they've run out of the best songs but to be fair uh, as you say Chris it does it builds up very well great dynamic um, and mm. it's not just mm. the singing you know the, the instrumentation as well builds really rather nicely mm. and yeah i got to say by the end uh, I was every time when it starts I'm a bit like nah but by the time it gets to the end I'm thinking yeah alright you know not a bad effort but you hate it Will yeah I've just written one word yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you like the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> I do. So I, I, I was very offended when you said the middle of the road Pointer Sisters. Now, honestly, didn't like this at all. Move on. We'll move on. So Computer Blue. It's rubbish, isn't it? I, I mean, like the last one, really. I mean, not a bad song, but this is where I'm starting to feel that there's there's no emotional content in in the performances of many of the songs on this album and this the same it's just not it's not sung from a place from the heart it's automatica if you like um so it's okay but it's not soul this reminded me of Giorgio Moroder or something from mm. that kind of sort of middle 80s period it's very, it's the most kind of synthesized of all the tunes and it's very very cold and it's very very stark and it's it's one of my least favorites of the of the of the album, yeah, it's, it's one of two songs of the album that I think are actually quite bad. It's just indulgent pap, really. I don't think it's good at all. There's something slightly emotionally stunted about the lyrics in all of this. Um, I mean, I don't know what age Prince was at this point. I mean, he's not an old man, but yeah, twenty five, twenty six, yeah, mid twenties. Yeah, I think I... just there's. I don't. I don't think he's paid a lot of attention to his lyrics, particularly in a lot of stuff, and there's no emotional depth to a lot of it. You would have to say, now, now, if you're making a dance record, you know, a funky record, does that matter? Maybe not in a lot of cases. Certainly on this album, I think he's a performer first rather than a poet. You know, he's not trying to tap into any of those great universal kind of issues of of humanity. It's, It's a performance. And it is a which is, help, a which is interesting well, because so. he's trying to tell a story. You know, he's making a film, and yet he's not necessarily telling us telling a, a terribly emotionally mature story in in any of the lyrics. Well, I think that that goes back to the whole idea that I have, and I think you have as well, Nick. That that he just didn't really see stuff through to completion, and it's all very well to I've written some music, here's some words that'll do, and like. You know, you might do that, but you go back and finish it at some point. You'd write some decent lyrics for it before you put it on your album, rather than just churning out some more stuff and then going on and writing another 230 songs. But then it comes back to the fact that he is capable of going and writing another 230 songs. I mean, you know, that's amazing talent. But he is also capable of great kind of emotional depth, you know, and out of, the Sign of the Times is an extraordinary album in terms of the, the, the issues and the emotions that that tackles, which was what? Three yeah, albums I after don't know whether he is capable at his best of capturing something in a line that is really evocative, but it just sometimes seems a bit hit or miss. 
I'm being a bit generalist here, Chris. I mean, I think it's fair to say that although he, ca- he obviously was capable of, of writing great lyrics and, and finishing a song, you know, for want of a better term, um, that he didn't always do it. And, you know, it did, there is a feeling that sometimes he just churned stuff out. But because he had so much stuff going on, and if he was doing it because of a lack of talent, that's a lot worse than doing it because he's, you know, mentally he's already moved on to something else, which I do get the impression was the case with him from what I've heard and what I've read about him. I think there's a bit of a misrepresentation of that. I think one of his biggest frustrations was the time the music industry took to actually get stuff out there. So his one of his big frustrations... Mm-hmm is that idea that he'd he'd write something, he'd record it, it was finished, he'd move on to the next thing. 18 months after writing those songs and recording them, he was then having to go and tour them. Yeah. And in those 18 months, he'd actually produced three more albums. Yeah. For a man who was so opposed to the whole idea of like streaming and music online and so on, he was actually the perfect artist for these times where you could actually record yeah. and have uh-huh. stuff online and available and on sale immediately and where you know uh-huh. musicians now are encouraged to write more, record more, because that, you know, having more stuff out there for sale is what's going to actually make you some money out of it. Anyway, should we move on to Darling Nikki? Darling Nikki. What did you make of this? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, juvenile tripe. It's, well, it's, it's just rubbish. It's pure art. It's infantile, but it's 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 quite sleazy. It's quite entertaining in a sleazy. We're talking way. about the the you know the emotional immaturity of the lyrics, and here we are. Um, here yeah. we are. For indeed. me, this is the other bad song on the album. Um, yeah. Not even going to say any more about it. Don't I, I I wrote down it's it's pound shop Rocky Horror Show songs. You know, yeah, uh, no, not good. The, the only thing that really kind of um, that makes me like this is the fact that it offended Tipper Gore. <laughs> yeah, but because of Tipper Gore being offended, it was the start of the PMRC, which caused nothing but problems for bands ever since. It's Prince's fault, Prince. Hi, hi, Otta. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's not, there's nothing to analyse. It's, it's just childish, isn't it? I mean. It's just being being shocking for the sake of being shocking. Yeah, so we're moving on from that one. Are we? No point in discussing it. It's just a bad song. Okay, well, we'll move on from Darling Nikki then. To When Doves Cry. Well, I love When Doves Cry. It's not just the best song on the album. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, from what I've ever heard, it's the best song Prince ever did uh, by a country mile. I think it's incredible. I think it's wonderful. It's weird. It's wonderful. It's... It's just great. Although I've got to say that the edited down single version is better than what's on the album. It's over long. It just goes on a bit at the end, which is a pity because it's it's near perfect. It's I think it's just great. And yeah, that thing about there being no bass on it, Chris. There's not just no bass. There's like there's no bottom end to the sound either. It's really unconventional in the way that it sounds because of that. And yeah, I never really thought about that until quite recently. But uh, it really yeah, it's such an odd sounding song. I, oh man, it's great. It's great. This was apparently chucked into the mix overnight when the director of the film told Prince that they needed one more track. Really? And he went away and came back the next day with When Doves Cry. Wow. wow. I think the vocal backing on this song is just incredible. The best best on the album. Yeah, the, you mean really the harmonies in the chorus, backing. yeah? Is that not Prince? Because he used, he used to actually harmonise with himself on a lot of his recordings. Yeah, I think. It, does anyone else play on that record? I don't know. But whatever, it's great. I mean, towards the end when they bring on that really kind of um, wilted um, Moog synth, it was like, oh, no, you're not going to go out on this. And then they bring that guitar in on the end, which which has made me much, much, much happier. So, yeah. It's got a kind of noise like a chainsaw in it, hasn't it? It's got that zingy kind of noise going on it. It's just an extraordinary... Mm sound i love it i love the sparseness of it the the op- yeah. you know the openness of the sound and so on i mean i like music that's like that that's good mm-hmm. you know, dynamically mm-hmm. apart from being too long but this is an example of where he can actually tap into some kind of deep emotion yeah i mean I, i'm not denying that you can do that chris there's something there's something that he captures there there's there's poetry in this one there's 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 heart yes agreed i would accept that yeah so how do you feel about i would die for you Nah, it's all right <laughs> uh, not 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 one of my favourites. Not one of my favourites. Um, it's okay though. Is Prince doing Prince very yeah well? It's, it's kind of feels like it's been churned out with not a lot of effort. It does the job. 
it's yeah. great i mean it's still a good track yeah i mean a lot of bands would be really happy to have that song in their repertoire i wonder whether it would be a better song if there was a little bit more space mm. it feels rushed that can happen when you play live you know everyone's yeah. drunk because there's nothing to do between soundcheck and the gig right <laughs> <laughs> but i can go to the bar <laughs> yeah Occasionally, um, singers just walk off the stage. It's been known to happen. It's been known to happen. And they don't come in on songs. I've, yeah, I've that's that's the opposite of rush, though, isn't it? That's, that's, that's kind of that's flushed. Very leisurely. <laughs> I, will only, I will only miss my cue once. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's okay, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and I mean I'd say the same about Baby I'm a Star. It's it's nothing special, but it's all right, isn't it? I mean. Again, it's a live performance. It's good spirited. Yeah, that one. That's the one that kind of most washes over me. I, I can't actually remember where it goes. Like, I don't know how many times I've listened to it. <laughs> but but then we get to the the final one, Purple Dirge. <laughs> that's hard. Sorry, Purple Rain. It's a bit unfair, guys. Well, do you know, I I say that I've always loved When Doves Cry, and I have. Right, I've always hated Purple Rain, the song, um, because it is so so dreary. But the thing is that, like Let's Go Crazy, until we've decided to cover this album, I'd never listened to Purple Rain, even though I've heard it thousands of times. I'd never listened to it. And on the first listen to the album, I had to admit to myself that it's a much better song than I've ever given it credit for. But once again, like Let's Go Crazy, I cannot get over the awfulness of the drums on it and how they overpower everything else. They are so, so, so loud and plodding. Just give us some normal sounding drums and it's twice the song, ten times the song. It's quite good. Um, it's pompous, it's over the top, it's nonsense, but, you know, that's, none of those things are necessarily bad. Yeah, I, I've warmed to it a great deal through this process, which is a good thing, you know. It's seen as a, as a classic all-time great rock ballad and if a month ago, if you'd said to me it's a classic all-time great rock ballad, I'd have said no, it's not. But now I'd say, yeah, I see where you come from. It's not one of my favourites, but you know. It's okay. Apparently, this started life as a country track. I think I yeah. read that. And <laughs> Prince brought in Prince. Prince brought in Prince brought in Stevie Nicks to work on it with him, and, and she was just didn't really know what to do with it. And he just started then playing it with his band, and the revolution started to lay down some more substantial, meaty guitar tracks, and it started to rock out a little bit. And decision was to take it in that. I've heard that, more, as you say, kind of pompous, overblown direction, and completely changed the completely changed the, the the shape and sound of the track. But you can kind of, if you listen to it, you can kind of get those country. You can see it working as a kind of pared down, stripped down country. Maybe maybe we should do it as a country number. Purple rain, purple rain. <laughs> Purple rain, purple rain. That's working, yeah. The thing that struck me with this song was the extraordinarily long outro of it, where it kind of finishes and you think, oh, yeah, it's just wrapping up now. And you kind of look, and there's still three minutes left to play. And it just goes on. The strings are great at the end. They're really good. It is a great ending, but it's an extraordinarily long ending. That's how you close the film, mate. You should know that. (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of people to be credited. I mean, that's actually one of the things that made me warm to that track, really. And I'm a bit like Al, you know, I didn't always like it, but on repeated listen, I was coming around to this. I I was amused by that story about Stevie Nicks, and I read that as well, and I really liked the idea that apparently he'd sent her this 10-minute long song, a country version of, and said, see what you can do with that. And she just said, I felt overwhelmed and I couldn't do anything. <laughs> so I had to go back to him and go, I can't do this. <laughs> and so he was then left in the lurch and had to go back to the revolution and come up with something different. That's what probably I would think if Prince sent me a 10-minute long country song and said... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I think of it happened now, but uh, yeah, I, I was talking the other week about having seen interview with uh, Susanna Hoffs, and she in that um, she was talking about Prince and how he liked the Bangles, and they were recording what what the hell would the album be? It wasn't all over the place, and it wasn't everything. It was one between different light. She basically got a phone call from him saying, "Could 
she'd go and see him in the studio. So she went round and he was, he was presented with a tape and it was Manic Monday that he'd written and he wanted them to mm-hmm. have it to record it. And yeah, they did. And it was like their first huge hit single, I think. So um, he he was good at sometimes coming out with hit songs. Yeah. Chaka Khan, I feel for you. Yeah, that was a Prince written yeah. song, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. I think he was very generous with his music, wasn't he? Was he was he generous in collecting the money for it? You mentioned earlier, Chris, about it being um, at number eight in the Rolling Stones' recent top five hundred albums of all time. Are you surprised that it's so high in the charts? Because I am. I think if you're listening to the album just in isolation, then it's probably not the eighth greatest album ever recorded. But if you take this as what it did for Prince, the point at which it came, the fact that you know that but. That there was a point where Prince ha- was the, the the Purple Rain the 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 film was the number one film in the cinema charts. Purple Rain the album was number one album, and Doves Cry I think was the number one single all at the same time. And then he won the Oscar for best original song in the show. So if you take all that into its entirety, it's 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 it's, it's that which makes it the eighth greatest album of all time, I think. And in those circumstances, yes, I think it does deserve its place. 1984 was about Prince. You know, he owned that year. He did, he did. And I... Okay, I mean, that, that's yeah. that's a valid point of view, but I, I, I don't agree with it. I think you've got to, if you're going to say this is the best album, then it has to surely just stand up by itself without having to contextualise why it's... It's like if you have to explain why a joke's funny, you know? If you have to explain why this is a bit... Other than the fact that listen to it and it's really good. If you have to say, yeah, but... There are many, many albums you can make a similar argument about. The current run is in top 100. Number one is Marvin Gaye, what's going on? And you can't separate that from what was happening at the time when it was made. You cannot separate any album from its context. Because it's a piece of, like like any art, you cannot separate it from its context. It is informed by and informs the context. So you you have to do that. And what's going on actually, interestingly, for it being the number one at the moment, when we are in a time of political unrest and and global weirdness, uh, it just seems appropriate that that is actually something that talks about that is all about conflict and you know so that, that makes kind of sense at this moment and so there, there's lots of things and I guess I don't know what it is about this album in 1984 that made it that I think there is something about of the fact that you've got this this character this person this artist coming out and being something so different I suppose maybe it's something about the time of when we're starting to the world's starting to get its head around AIDS and all sorts of other stuff that we're, we're talking about sex. And you've got Frankie goes to Hollywood in the UK and you've got Prince. Well, yes, that, that was something I was going to talk about with Frankie goes to Hollywood, but I just felt that I might be off on one again if I did. But yeah, the, the, them arriving at a time when we, when AIDS was starting, it wasn't starting to become, but AIDS had become sort of a, a thing that everyone was terrified of. And to have this band who were so openly gay, even though only two of them were gay, and this disease that was seen as a gay plague at the time, completely unfairly, obviously. But, but it's something about being sexually prov- provocative that is yes powerful at that point. Yeah. However, can I say, Chris and Nick, that I think you two would be absolutely happy to completely ignore the context of an album that you didn't like, if you didn't like it, to say that it wasn't good. In fact, I'd stake cash money that you'd happily do that if you didn't like an album. So um, while I I take your point on board, I also think you're talking nonsense to a degree. There you go. I just can't envisage... That, that anyone could listen to that album and think of this is the best album ever. I mean, come on. It's not that good. It's no, not, it's not, no, I agree. But it's, it's, a, ge- it's an incredibly it's, it's, good. it's an incredibly important album made by an incredibly important musician and the time that it was made and, and the context around which we, it was made is incredibly interesting. And some of the songs on that album album are actually... You know, top of the pile, very, very good, excellent, and some of them aren't. But that doesn't stop it being an important album by a very important uh, artist. Can we disagree on that? I think we can agree on that well. I think that's well put. 
It sold 25 million copies worldwide and is one of the biggest ever selling soundtrack albums. So, again, if we're trying to measure, is it a great album? So, what, are you saying that it shouldn't be so high or it should be behind the Bodyguard soundtrack because it's the biggest selling (laughs) album of all time? Well, of course, the Bodyguard album should be in the top five, Rolling Stones. Yeah. um, (laughs) The greatest albums of all time. Mm. Do we want to go down a Kevin Costner wormhole at the moment? Because yes, yeah, I, I was involved. I was involved in a Kevin Costner argument the other night, which uh, still oh, hasn't on. really kind of resolved itself. Yeah, go yeah. On. They never do no, with well, Kevin Costner. Is, was it about Waterworld? It, it could have been about any of the enormous number of shit films that that man has made. <laughs> but I'd say No Way Out is a good film, though. That's what Kevin. Bull Costner. Durham is quite good. I quite like Field Bill of Dreams, Durham, Durham. I think. Oh, Durham, is good. Field of Dreams. Oh, I love Bill that. Durham, that's yeah, good it really film. is good, isn't it? Yeah. But that's it. He's only made three um, good films. The rest of them are awful. Yeah, and... and, and, and the Untouchables is quite good. Oh, I quite like that. Well, so we were, that's, we were watching The Untouchables. Ah. Started. <laughs> ah, right. And it's not, it's not a great film, but it is a good film. No, it's not. And all sorts of faults. And actually, the, the point was that Kevin Costner is only good when he's basically playing himself, i.e. a uptight arse. <laughs> <laughs> Language. <sighs> Language. Um, hi, I've got another, Kev- I've got a Kevin Costner story to throw in here as well, because quickly. Um, oh, your yeah. friend and mine, uh, Chris Jody, um, when he was at film school, uh-huh. he was complaining to me one night when we were in the pub about how uh, people, when, when they had that conversation of what you're doing, you're like, I'm at film school. And people would then always ask him, what's your favourite film? And I can understand that that got quite annoying. So I was thinking, well, what you should do is tell them a film that isn't awful. You know, it's not Plan 9 from Outer Space or anything like that. But that is obviously no one's idea of anyone's favourite film. And just to see how people react to that. And the one I thought of was Dances with Wolves. But then I thought, take it even further. And get the title wrong. Tell people, tell people your favourite film is Dancing with Wolves <laughs> and see if they correct you because <laughs> it's your favourite film. And if they do, just be like, no, no, it's dan- Dancing with Wolves. <laughs> and also just the idea of, as I say, name a film that's, that's, that's worthy but dull, but it's not bad, right? Um, but, if, you know, that's, surely that's no one's favourite film, right? And yeah, I don't think he ever did it, but I just I, that would be a brilliant thing to do. <laughs> on that note, should we um, take a pause note. and then come back to discuss the rest of 1984? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. let's do that. Cue music. Okay, welcome back. Um, we're going to talk about our favourite albums and singles of the year. Um, Let's uh, start with Nick. My favourite album of the year was um, is probably I'm going to go for Madness. Keep on moving, which is um, an album which was you know the last album before they they kind of Mike Barson left and they broke up for the last time, so they were sort of on a slightly downhill trajectory. But uh, I think it was when they matured into a really remarkable band and it's an amazing album. So, so Michael Michael Caine is on there. Yeah, so that you. was just... I like Michael Caine. Yeah. But I would recommend you go back and listen to that. That is an, that's, There's some really great mature pop songs in that. They were start really starting to come together as a band. They'd moved beyond the sort of complete madness, absolutely stuff. They were no longer the ska band. They were a proper mature... I don't know how to how you would describe the madness sound. Nutty boys, <laughs> the nutty boys, but they're not the nutty boys. They're not just the nutty boys at that point. That's a mature, jazz inflected, um, sound, and and that's that's a great album. My favorite number one single of the year. I, I'm gonna go for Do They Know It's Christmas. Oh, Bandy, because it was recorded on my on my birthday. And it's such an important thing, and it's one of those singles that I can sing every lyric. Favorite album. Favorite album has to be the first Smiths album, The Smiths. Although I actually prefer Hatful of Hollow, which is also released in 1984. Um, but that's a kind of compilation album. Well, it's a compilation album. It's not a studio album. 
And single, I'm going to go for The Power of Love by Frankie oh, Goes to Hollywood, yeah. which I think is a yeah. beautiful song. Bunch of old romantics. Um, obviously, Relax and then Two Tribes had both hit the charts beforehand. Um, big, brassy, ballsy tunes. And then Power of Love came out, which is just something very, very different. And wonderful lyrics, just just soft, gentle, but absolutely heartbreaking. That's a good song. Favourite favorite, favorite single of the year. So, Will. No, no, I'll go last. Oh, oh. I think my favourite number one single of the year is probably Nena, 99 Red Balloons. Mostly because it's just a good power pop tune. I kind of prefer the German version to the English version, but, you know, whatever. Either is fine. But it's also that whole sort of um, Cold War paranoia fear of uh, being wiped out by um, political stupidity and all that um, it's, it's very much of its time but it's also like something that's kind of come back into our world today my favourite album something a little bit more obscure I am going to go for um, Texas Fever by Orange Juice which uh, is a very short little album they put out the, the last one they did as kind of a full band before it all kind of fell apart they have one more album it's good up-tempo pop songs, particularly like the song The Day I Went Down to Texas and uh, last song on it, A Sad Lament, which is one of their very best. And, and I love Orange Is the Band. I think they're fantastic. Uh, Will, what about yourself? C- could I beg to sort of co-own The Smiths? Mm-hmm. Because it genuinely was one of those albums that just knocked me sideways when I heard it. Um, back about 10 months earlier... I was sitting with friends in a pub called The Fighting Cocks in Mosley, Birmingham, that was fairly famous for having you know, punk rock, post-punk bands on. Quite a small room, 30, 35 people, 40 tops. We, we go there every Friday night. We don't care who's playing. We it's just go there to, to hear music. And this band get up, and they are absolutely just incredible. Um, so we p- pluck up the courage to go over and you know, speak to them. And we kind of said, we're, we're helping curate um, music for a, a Labour Party gala in Cannock, Staffordshire in the summer. W- would you play at it? And they said, yeah, ask our manager and pointed over to the other side of the room. And it was like, oh, my God, they've got a manager. Anyway, they were the Smiths and they came <laughs> and played at the Cannock Labour Miners Gala because uh, Cannock was a, a mining town. And um, my friend's band, uh, a dog named Ego, that I was, I think I was thrown out of it a month before or something like that. They, they also played with them. So my friend always walked around saying, I supported the Smiths, which is a nice oh, one. Wow. And I go around saying, and I, I <laughs> actually taped the drummer's drums down. I almost supported the Smiths. You should get that in a t shirt, Will. <laughs> I so should. I so should. That is amazing. Um, but anyway, they came and played. And if you look online, if you say the Smiths Canuck, you get this story about them being um, bottled off stage, um, which is, I was there, and it's absolutely not true. So it's, it's really weird. We, we, none of us know how this story got up there. You threw bottles, but they refused to get off the stage. <laughs> they refused to get off stage. They were just amazing. Um, when we saw them play again, and then when this album then came out after a few months afterwards, it was like, wow. So that's why I'd like to kind of co-share that one with you. Um, there's I'm sure you there's enough story. of that album for yeah, both of us yeah. then. There's enough of that yeah. album for both of us, Will. And um, in terms of singles... Um, I think it's going to be I Feel For You by Chaka Khan, which, yeah, interestingly, is a song written by Prince himself. What a great choice. The circle is complete. So what's next? The, the, the thing we really, really need to do next is draw this to a close. But <laughs> before we do that, we've got to figure out what the hell we're going to talk about next time. The random year generator threw up. 2011. More recent than some of our other previous choices. I've gone for um, Let England Shake by PJ Harvey. It's Oof. an album I know quite well, but I haven't listened to it for quite some time. So um, let's get back into it again. It was a big album of the year. It, yeah, it, it, it kind of did the business. It topped all the charts. Yeah, I, I've heard it, but I don't think I've ever listened to it. So interesting. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Weirdly, I, um, I, I got it again. I got it um, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's a brilliant album. I don't know well enough. I, I'm a stories from the city, stories from the sea guy. I, that's 
one of my favourites of all time. But I don't know this album as well. So I am really looking forward to this, actually. So is this how it ends? I think this is how it ends. With a whimper, not a bang. We'll go with a bang next week, but hey, this was 1984, so let's just relax. <laughs> don't do it. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Right, I'm going to press stop. Stop.